All right, Rebecca's going to read our text, and then I'll talk about it a little bit. Beloved, let us love one another, because love is from God, and all who love are fathered by God and know God. The one who does not love has not known God, because God is love. This is how God's love has appeared among us. God sent his only son into the world so that we should live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the sacrifice that would atone for our sins. Beloved, if that's how God loved us, we ought to love one another in the same way. Nobody has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is completed in us. That is how we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us a portion of his spirit. And we have seen and bear witness that the Father sent the Son to be the world's Savior. Anyone who confesses that Jesus is God's Son, God abides in them, and they abide in God. And we have known and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. Those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. This is what makes love complete for us, so that we may have boldness and confidence on the day of judgment, because just as he is, so are we within this world. There is no fear in love. Complete love drives out fear. Fear has to do with punishment, and anyone who is afraid has not been completed in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God, but hates their brother or sister, that person is a liar. Someone who doesn't love a brother or sister whom they have seen, how can they love God whom they haven't seen? This is the command we have from him. Anyone who loves God should love their brother or sister too. Hi, my name's Thad, and I'm a recovering know-it-all. I say recovering because uh, I've come, I think, some way in that journey over the course of my 42 and a half years, uh, but I don't know that you ever get clear of it this side of eternity. Um, My journey with this uh, sense of knowing everything Uh, was sometimes, and speaking especially in my younger, less mature years, was sometimes that I really thought I knew more than I did. There's certainly that element was present uh, for a lot of years of my life. Um, But what I've discovered as I've grown through it and as I've gotten older, that sometimes that part of me that claimed to know more than I did existed to feed some other vice in my life, like sarcasm or verbal sparring with people. Um, And uh, I was, I I thought, let me think of a good example of that in the flood of examples that came to my mind is humiliating, but I'll just share one. When I was in ninth grade, uh, we read Great Expectations uh, by Charles Dickens. Anybody had that pleasure of reading Great Expectations? Um, And we, I was in... Uh, ninth grade honors English. So these are the true, you know, literate people who appreciate the depth and the character of rich literature like this. There were about 11 of us in this class. And because the teacher was having such a hard time getting us to actually read when we'd come to class for discussion about it, she decided we were going to read it aloud in class. Uh, 
uh, significant passages from Great Expectations we would read aloud in class. Uh, I, I'll, I'll confess to you that I still don't c- care much for this author. Um, but we started, as we started reading aloud, uh, some of us started renaming the characters as we would read. So you've got a main character named Pip, who in all of our ninth grade uh, creativity, we began to call Pip the Dip. Uh, and, but the real winner of this was there's a Mr. Jaggers in the story who we, of course, began to call Mick Jagger. Um, and this made our teacher crazy that we would do this. And so at some point in the back and forth over what names we use for these characters in the book, I began an argument with the teacher in which I asserted that Dickens based the character on a man who was actually Mick Jagger's great-grandfather, and that when the Rolling Stones became famous, Mick dropped the S because he had such a traumatic experience by being forced to read Dickens when he was in school. Um, This is absurd, of course, but we carried this argument on long enough that we actually pulled our teacher into the mechanics of the argument to, to try to disprove us that this didn't actually happen, um, which is success, right? At the point at which she begins to disprove us, we have succeeded both because we got her to treat it like a real argument um, and because it meant, and this was the real prize, the more time we spent on that, the less time we spent reading the book in class. I have now learned that this is called gaslighting and that you shouldn't do that kind of thing to people. but in ninth grade, you know. Uh, At this point in my life, I know maybe as well as I know anything that I don't know everything. Does that make sense? I am fully convinced of uh, that I don't know everything and that I, not only do I not know everything, um, it's maybe the thing I'm most sure of that there's so much that I don't know. Uh, And there's way more that I don't know than I do. But the ruts that we build in our brain and the habits that we develop in in sort of trying to prove these things run deep. So just last night, uh, as Amy started to change a light bulb on a lamp that wasn't working, I explained to her that there was a short in the lamp and that's why the light bulb burned out because the short in the lamp popped the bulb. Um, And I thought she was listening to me, I did. And then a minute later she came back in with a new bulb and I said, are we just going to pop another one to prove that it's shorted out? She said, oh, is it shorted out? And I said, yeah, I just told you that I'm certain that it's shorted out, at which point she finishes screwing in the new bulb and it works perfectly. <clears throat> so, as though I'm an electrician, right? But uh, I don't know everything. And I've learned that in some really hard ways over the years. And Theology is one of the spaces where that that lesson came quickest and studying the Trinity, the fact that the God that we worship is one God who is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. I have multiple distinct memories of trying to wrap my head around this concept and struggling to understand it and feeling like this isn't supposed to happen. I'm not supposed to have a hard time understanding this and being humbled. Uh, in, in my own sense of what I know and what I'm capable of knowing. Uh, so we're going to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity tonight. And what I want to say before I get into it is that it's a little heady at points. It's a little complex at points. 
but it matters. And I'm going to do my very best to take us through this in a way that makes some sense. It's not going to make perfect sense for everybody, but that makes some sense and that enables us to see why it matters, why it's important that we understand this part of God's nature. This is one of the places where I crack open the real theology books when I'm preparing because it's so very easy to speak or to write inaccurately about the nature of a God who is three in one. Uh, I, don't think, I don't think that that's because God has made himself impossible to know or to understand, though there are times when it feels that way. Rich, one of my very favorite songs that Rich Mullins ever wrote was a song that he wrote not long before he died, and we only have this like really rickety little tape recording of him actually singing it. Uh, but it's a song called Hard to Get, and the real kicker in the middle of the lyric is, did you forget about, he's singing to God, and he says, did you forget about us after you had, gone, had flown away? Well, I memorized every word you said. Still, I'm so scared, I'm holding my breath while you're up there just playing hard to get. And it feels that way with God sometimes, right? That, that we've done everything we can possibly do to understand and to know him, and he's just playing hide and seek with us. I don't I don't think that's true about God. I don't think that's true even in this concept of the Trinity. I think he is difficult to get at some times, but that's not always a bad thing in the end. It drives us deeper into our faith if we'll let us, if we'll let it. Um, but I don't think it's waiting, that, that he's up there waiting for us to make one little mistake in the precision of how we talk about him or how we understand him. But I do think it matters how we talk about him and how we understand him. And as it relates to this concept, I think it's just that he's this glorious mystery that has been revealed to us and that is being revealed to us. Does that make sense? There is definitely a way in which God has been made known to us and we can know him as he is. He's also a mystery that is continually being revealed especially when, as it relates to our finite minds and our understanding, which is not 100%. It doesn't happen all at once. It unfolds over time. So I think it's worth taking a little bit of time, even if deep theological study or work is not our strength, to really look into this mystery and to build a basic understanding of it that's accurate, that reflects who he really is. And this is the reason. Here's the reason we're going to do all of this. So Starting back in September, we began a series where we started talking about the nature of the church, and in particular, our church community, who we are, and what is important about us. And we've come back again and again to this statement that we are people who are following Jesus in biblical community for the redemption of the world. And so we've been kind of working through these ideas, first talked about worship, then talked about mission, those two in the fall, and now we're going to spend several weeks talking about community. And the premise, the reason that we're talking about the Trinity tonight, because uh, the, the statement that I want to build this whole section where we talk about the nature of community and why we are made to live in community, the premise is this, that community is not just God's idea, it's God's nature. It's who he is. So tonight, I want to give from this passage in 1 John that Rebecca read to us, I want to give attention to two primary revelations that, that happen in this passage. And the first is what I've been talking about, that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. He is three in one. Okay, let's look at 
how this shows up in this passage, and then I'll come back and talk about it conceptually a little bit. I'm going to skip kind of to the key parts of the passage for the sake of time. But in, here in 1 John 4, John tells us that all who love are fathered by God. We have this image of God as Father. This, none of these concepts, Father, Son, or Spirit, that we're going to see in this text uh, are only presented in this text, of course, but this is our primary text, and so I want you to see that they show up really clearly in this text. So we have, we have John talking about God, and he seems to, when he refers to God, at least at certain points in this text, be referring to who we understand to be God the Father. And he says, all who love are fathered by God. And then if you skip down a little bit, he says, God sent his only son into the world. So the father sent his son, and it's repeated in verse 10, he loved us and sent his son. So we have the introduction of father and son to this point. And then down in verse 13, he says, he has given us a portion of his spirit. And the reference there is not just uh, some sort of ancillary part of God that he's given us. It's part of his nature. It's part of who he is that he has given us his spirit. And then he says, the father sent the son to be the world's savior. We have this concept of the Trinity of father, son, and spirit all appearing in this one text. And that doesn't always happen. They all three appear in other places in the scriptures. They don't always appear in the same text in this particular way, but they do here. So Here's what I want to say, uh, just a few key things to understand about God as Trinity. First of all, uh, and, and I, uh, you may have seen on social media this week, uh, when, I, when I first started at Community Church in 2006, Scott gave me a book that's about this thick uh, called Theology for the Community of God by a guy named Stan Grenz, who died about 10 or 12 years ago, um, and it's a terrific theology text that is not impossible to read. <laughs> um, and so I owe a lot of my understanding in a way that it, you can try to re relay this information to the way that Grins explains the Trinity. But the first thing to understand is that God is one. And this is the easiest and quickest way that we can get off track in understanding the Trinity is, is to believe that we have three gods, that there is God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and there are three separate gods. But the scriptures teach clearly and consistently that there is only one true God. And this God that the New Testament refers to, this God that we talk about when we talk about God, is the God of the New Testament community, and it's uh, the God of the Old Testament people of God, the, the God that they knew as Yahweh. This is the one true God. The Trinity also tells us, though, that God is three in one. The one God, the one true God is three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are, and this is important, they are three distinct members of the one God of the Trinity. We're not talking about a single being that sometimes chooses to show up as a father, that sometimes chooses to show up as a son, that sometimes chooses to manifest himself as a spirit. This is not the wizard behind the screen with the Wizard of Oz to, to where what is displayed in one sense is, is not who God actually is. He is, the one God is three and all three are distinct beings. They are not just different sort of appearances or manifestations of who God is, okay? The next, let me just say that if you're, if you're thinking, 
I'm supposed to totally understand this before we go to the next point. You're not. <laughs> it is a difficult concept, and part of what we're doing is trying to work our way through it in a way that uh, we look at it from different angles, and by the end, we have a little bit of a sense of what it all means, okay? So just try to take in each piece, and then at the end, hopefully, we'll be able to put something together. The next point is this. God is three in his being, not just in his acting, and here's what that means. In, in his essence, who God is, whether he appears to us or not, whether we see him or not, he is Father, Son, and Spirit. That's, that's his identity. He is essentially Father, essentially Son, essentially Spirit, as opposed to essentially a God who may show up as one or the other. Does that make sense? He is, whether we're around or not, this is who he is. The distinctions, in other words, are internal to his identity, not just external, not just how we see him or perceive him. They are who he is, Father, Spirit, Son, okay? Next thing is God is, God was, God will be three in one. God didn't at some point in time become the Trinity and at some point in time will sort of morph back into one being, he has always been who he is. The nature of God is eternal. He's always been three in one. He will always be three in one. Okay, and this last point is um, not so much a bullet point in the exact way of the others, but it is a way, I think, of starting to step into, into this from our, our perspective and look at God and and maybe understand this all a little better, and that is this. Each of the three members of the Trinity fulfills specific roles, and each of the three is involved in everything God does. So the main points here are the Father has a specific role as Father, the Son has a specific role as Son, and the Spirit has a specific role as Spirit. And... All are involved in every area of God working in the world. They're always working in perfect harmony with the other two. And because they comprise one God, not three gods, there's always one divine agenda, always one divine will, one divine program. They're all three involved in everything, though they each have unique roles at different times. So let me give you a couple of examples of, of that last part, which I think give us an easier way of seeing and understanding the big picture. Um, some ways that, that these, these truths about God are evident in what we know, what we experience about God. So one example would be that, would be creation. So God the Father is who we tend to think of when we think of at least the very beginning of creation. God created the heavens and earth, right? So the Father is the ground of creation. But the Son and the Spirit act with the Father in creating. They were not bystanders to the creation. They are actively a part of creation. We know specifically that the Son of God is also known as the Word of God, and he's the one through whom the Father creates. We're told that at different points that the Father speaks through, by speaking the Word, speaks creation into being. John 1 articulates it this way, in the beginning was the word, and this is a reference to Jesus the Son, 
and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. We also, if you go back into the creation accounts, you'll also begin to see the spirit of God at work uh, in the creation. All three have a role here. All three are up to the same thing because they are three members of the same God. Second illustration would be that Jesus, the son of God, is our redeemer. He's the one that we sing about when we sing about the cross, when we sing about forgiveness, when we sing about the work of redemption that took place on the cross. So the Son is the Redeemer of humanity, but the Father and the Spirit are involved together with the Son in the work of reconciliation. The Father, the Scriptures tell us, is actually the one working through the Son. And we see this, Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. So we have the Son at work giving us new creation, making us new creation. And then he says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. The Son is the one who does the work. The Father is the one working through the Son. And the Spirit is active in this same, in this same, the work of redemption, the work of reconciliation. The Spirit is active. The Spirit is the divine power in acting this process all the way from our individual new birth to the ultimate resurrection of our bodies. Paul says in Romans 8, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, all three members of the Trinity exist in that phrase. If the spirit of the father who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. These are two examples and you could start a study of any number of activities that we see God undertaking in the world and identify the father, the son, and the spirit at work in them. So we see both how essential all three members of the Trinity are to who God is. We also see the unity of the three in one true God. One divine will, one divine program, not three. Um, this is, the, trying to explain the Trinity is one of those areas of preaching and teaching where it's incredibly difficult to resist the urge to use any number of analogies that almost offer us a good way of understanding the Trinity. Um, and, and people have tried. People have compared the Trinity to, to water, to H2O. So uh, water, though always the same substance, can appear in three different states, right? Solid, liquid, and gas. Um, and People have tried to use the metaphor of a tree. A tree has a root, has a trunk, has a branch. They're all still essentially one tree. Uh, an egg has a yolk, has a shell, has an egg white, all still one egg. But all of these analogies uh, pretty quickly run into one flaw or another. 
that make them imperfect ways of understanding the Trinity. It's okay if one of those helps you a little bit, but just understand that none of them perfectly capture the essence of who God is, one God, three persons. Uh, Augustine said about that struggle to find an appropriate analogy for the Trinity that this is a reminder that while the imprint of this mysterious triune God is found in creation, nothing in all of creation is quite so perfect and mysterious as the three-in-one creator himself. That's enough for me. It might not be enough for you, Uh, but it's a mystery. It's not something that's ever going to make perfect sense to our Western. uh, We have been taught to think and to learn and to understand the world in very logical ways. And God isn't subject to the ways that we have been educated or shaped by our culture. And so there are realities about him that we can understand and that remain mysterious. So uh, I I think the Trinity is one of those. The goal of talking about that is not total mastery or total understanding of God's three-in-one nature. There's still a mystery, like I said here. But the goal is that we get just a clear sense that, that this is who God shows himself to be in the scripture. One God comprised of Father, Son, and Spirit who have always existed and will always exist and who are always involved in the divine work and always working in perfect harmony. That's the essence. And then as we get into this, this second piece of the puzzle, I think the first piece starts to make a little bit more sense. And the, and the second piece, if the first being that the God, God is Father, Son, and Spirit. He's three in one. The second piece is uh, revealed quite explicitly in this, chap, in this passage from John, that God is love. Um, this, I, I think as we move from here's God, three in one, into this is what it means that God is love. Getting even just a very, very basic understanding of the Trinity is important to understanding the second point. And here's why. The, the idea, the statement, God is love, may be in the top three most misunderstood, misused, abused sort of statements about God. Because without some definition, without some understanding of who God is, in his very being, we can take the statement, well, God is love, and we can make it mean a thousand different things that fit our agendas of who we want God to be by taking this idea of, well, he's love and define love the way we want to define it, hoist that upon God and say, well, there you go, that's who God is. And understanding that God is Father, Son, and Spirit is going to be key to understanding what John means when he says God is love. So let's look at where he says this really clearly in the passage. In verse seven, he says, love is from God and all who are fathered by God, all who love are fathered by God and know God, a a really direct tie there. And then he just says it flat out in verses eight and verses 16, God is love. So uh, I wanna say a couple of things, just a, a couple of things in particular about what John is saying, what he means, and how this applies for us when he says that God is love. Um, The first thing that I want to say about that is this. The triune God is essentially love. We've 
got multiple meaning, me, meanings for different words uh, in our language and in our culture. And so I want to be clear that when I say he is essentially love, I mean in his essence and what makes him up, he is love. I don't mean, you know, we, we often say, well, I mean, I'm essentially done with school. And we mean, I'm, I'm pretty much done. I'm essentially done with my homework, mom. That doesn't mean your homework in its essence is totally completed. When you say essentially, it often means the opposite of that it in its essence is complete, right? It means mostly, more or less, I'm satisfied with its level of completion, right? That's not what I mean when I say the triune God is eh, essentially love. I mean in his very being, this God is love. An academic way of saying it is that the ontological unity in the Trinity is agape, which basically means, don't worry, I didn't even put that on the screen, basically means God being who God is as Father, Son, and Spirit unified into one God, each of the three fully giving the individual self to the other. God being who God is as Father, Son, and Spirit, that's what love is. That is the essence of love. When we see God as he is, Father, Son, and Spirit, that's love all by itself. That perfect triune God is love, and this is important, and this is a way that is helpful to me anyway of understanding the real meaning and the real power of this. That perfect triune God is love not only when God does something loving outside of himself, but simply as he exists. Love exists. Where God exists, love exists. The ultimate application, of, of course, for us is that this triune God um, and his nature, who he is in his essence, reveals love to us, shows us what love is, defines love for us, but when John says God is love here, he is saying just in existing as he exists without adding any of us to the story at all, God is love. You don't have to fully understand the why of that, I don't think, to, to take it in as what is being said here. I am not necessary to the equation for God to be love. God is not just love because he has loved me. He was loved before I existed. In his nature, he is love. So take five seconds. Let your brain catch up a little bit. I think this becomes a little more earthy and attainable as we progress, and there's not much left. Don't worry. Um, one important distinction that I think is worth making is that this does not mean that love is God. And this is one of the real confusions that often arises. When people say, God is love, what they're actually saying sometimes is, well, love is God. Whatever I say is love, that must be who, who God is, what God is. And John doesn't say, because love is God. He says, because God is love. Love has no existence unless there is someone doing the loving unless there is someone or something being loved. So love isn't its own being. It's what happens between two beings, and love can't be God. And 
and to break that down just a little bit further, John is telling us that the essence of God, God is an actual being. He's not an abstraction or a generalization of love. The essence of God is love. So we can know love because God exists. He's not saying we can know God because love exists. There's a difference in the two. God is the beginning of it all. He is uh, the one where love, in whom love is generated. Because God, therefore love. Not because love, therefore God. That's a really bad uh, logic problem. Uh, but that's, that's the order, that's the sequence in which John speaks, okay? One way, I think, of putting some clarity to this is this. God is love before his love ever appears to us. And that's, that's not just an abstraction. This is where this concept and the Trinity, I think, really begin to come together and hopefully clear some things up for us. When we say God is love before his love ever appears to us, we don't mean God is just some big puffy cloud of love in the sky. Isn't that cute? God is love out there. Always and forever, God is love. We mean something specific. We mean before his love ever appears or acts among us, God is a definite being. He is a father, he is a son, and he is a spirit who is actively loving something. And here's the Trinity at work. That activity is taking place among the Trinity. It is father-loving son, son-loving spirit, spirit-loving father, and then in reverse. This is what it means to say that God is love. In his essence, as father, son, and spirit, he is actively loving the other members of the Trinity. And I think this is one of the beauties of this Trinitarian mystery is that love can exist without me. And that is, um, I, there are moments in which I don't want that to be true when, I'm, when I want the world to revolve around me, when I realize that I don't know everything and that uh, a world that revolves around me quickly falls apart. I need this to be true, that God, this God who loves me was love before I ever came into the picture wasn't something he just decided because he looked at me. It's who he is, and it's who he's always been. I think this also, this is just a little bit of a side note, but it also offers some texture for words that we sometimes stumble around, uh, ideas that we sometimes stumble around with about God loving himself and God making a big deal of his own glory. Is When you begin to understand this concept of the Trinity, you get some, some added texture to those phrases. But in, in sort of giving us a sense of, of what this looks like, God being love in his essence, in his very being, theolog theologians use this phrase, reciprocal self-dedication, to talk about the ways that the members of the Trinity relate to one another. There is a reciprocal, a give and take, self-dedication, a, a full giving of oneself and receiving that giving from the other members of the Trinity that happens among the Trinity. Before you and I ever exist, the Father, Son, and Spirit are loving one another perfectly and completely. That's the picture that we're giving. I think that seeing love this way helps us perceive love as something big and something weighty. To help, it helps us perceive love as a really profound reality rather than just something romantic or temporal, all these little ideas that we come up with for love, 
don't survive in this understanding of who God is in his very being. Because when we think of Father, Son, and Spirit loving one another always, forever, perfectly, completely, we intuitively know that this is a kind of eternal dedication and connection that transcends all of our small, romantic, imperfect notions about love, right? It has to be something far bigger than all of those things. And I think that's helpful both to avoid confusing God is love with some far less personal and powerful notion that love is God and maybe more importantly for us in giving us a sense of what it means that God is love at his very essence, in his very being. He is this eternal, deep, unshakable, unbreakable, unwavering love. The word in Greek is agape, this reciprocal self-dedication between Father, Son, and Spirit, three beings, but fully one because of that kind of love. This term agape essentially means the giving of oneself for another. It is a kind of love that is a giving of oneself fully for another. And, And God is agape, is what we're told here, within himself, before we ever enter the story. Uh, and and that's, that's the only way that the three can truly be one, because if there's any lesser love between them, then we have different agendas, we have different directions. But the reason that three and one make sense is because of this existence of this reciprocal self-dedication, this sacrificial love that each of them has for the other. And because this kind of love, this agape love, is so fundamentally part of God's essence, it's not just something he does, it's who he is. It's his substance. Uh, in a few weeks, we'll, we'll really get into this, but, but one of the things, try to, try to keep some of the power of this in your brain for a few weeks, because one of the things this does is it puts enormous energy and significance behind the discovery that this God who, when we talk about agape, when we talk about that kind of love, we're talking about the love that exists between Father, Son, and Spirit. This puts enormous energy and significance behind the discovery that that God, who is perfect in love within himself, bends that agape toward us in the cross. If we, if we understand love as this kind of agape dedication between members of the Trinity, It gives us a deeper understanding of and an appreciation for the love given to us through the Son on the cross. So, to just put a period on tonight, um, understanding this about God's nature gives us a foundation for both the why and the how of community. There are lots of ways that we can teach about community. We've taught about community a lot of ways over the years. Um, and to be honest with you, I started into this, I got the sermon halfway done and I thought, I'm not even going to try. Uh, let's find something different, but I couldn't shake it. Um, and it's not cause I don't think anybody's smart enough in the room. It's just a very difficult concept and it's a difficult concept to be honest, to get up and talk about and try to explain and wait for a group of people to all give me knowing nods of, okay, I get it. Uh, but I do think it's essential that we know who God is and how he is within himself. And understanding this about God's nature does give us a really meaningful base for understanding why community matters and how 
community is supposed to happen. From the beginning of God's story in Scripture, we have some hint of the why community would be essential for those whose father is God. Because, as John tells us here, God is love. We have that nailed down. And then when we go back and we read the creation account and we hear God say, let's make humankind in our image according to our likeness. And then we see him do it. God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We get an answer to why community. First of all, this is who God is. God is love. He is this perfect community of love. And then, put really plainly, we individually bear the image of that God and we collectively bear God's image. That's why community. And that's the, the big idea tonight is that God in his very essence, in his very being, is this community of love, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we are lovingly created because that's who God is. He's love. So his creation of us it happens in love, is an expression of his loving nature. So we're lovingly created in the image of that God who is a perfect community of love, which means his love becomes our essence. It becomes the stuff that makes us who we are, that flows through our lives, uh, just in the way it flows through the triune God. And we live out of that essence. Let's pray. Father, would you, um, in all of the miraculous ways that you do, would you show us who you are? Would you uh, transcend my feeble and fumbling attempts to explain the mysterious nature of who you are? And would you make yourself known as you really are? And would you give us a spirit that cares about who you are? And I know my confession is I come to this moment of preparation in, in this sermon, in this series, and it's easy for me to go, mm, all those details don't matter that much. Let's move on to something simpler. This is who you are. And so would you, in my spirit, in our collective spirit as your people, give us a heart to know you as you're known and then to embrace this truth that we are made, we are created in love, in your image, and we are meant to bear in the world the image of who you are, the truth of who you are. And then bring that to life in us. Make us alive in you. Fill us with your presence. Fill us with who you are and change us and change the world around us as you work in us and through us. We pray all of that in Jesus' name.